0: My dad says, you got a chore to do. I said, what? He said, you got to go talk to your brother. He's trying to learn to fly. Kenny was always confident in whatever he did. I'm sure that he was thinking we can make it to the airport. Lake had 18 inches of ice and two or three feet of snow. He was in a white, total whiteout. He couldn't tell up from down.
1: Here's the kind of guy Ken Hubbs was. In 1962, his rookie season with the Cubs, he was apartment hunting in Chicago when he encountered a beleaguered landlady who'd had one too many experiences renting to party animal ballplayers.
0: He was um, out hunting for an apartment close to Wrigley Field.
1: That's Keith Hubbs, Kenny's older brother.
0: And he had his Cub bag and his stuff standing at the front door to this apartment talking to this lady. When the lady saw that he was a cub, she says, I don't rent the ball players. I did before and they messed up my apartments. And Kenny says, Well, you know, I, I don't party, I don't drink, I don't smoke and she says, I don't care, ball players are out. And these kids playing ball in the street, hit a ball over and fire and Kenny grabbed it, started to throw it back to him and this kid ran over and he sees Kenny's cubs bag. And these little kids said, are, are you play for the Cubs? And Kenny says, yeah, this my first year. And they said, come on out and play with us. And he says, well, I can't. They said, um, I got to go find an apartment. When I do, I'll come back and play with you. And that is typically Kenny, because he he spent time with little kids, like I told you. Mm-hmm. He loved to be around them. And the and lady, she says, "Why why are you lying to that young boy? You're not going to come back and play with them. Kenny says, I am. I told him I would. He says, as soon as I find an apartment, I'll come out and play. The landlady said, well, you found your apartment. She said, I'll take your bags in, go play with the kids.
1: That's coming up on Fade Away. Everybody and a very pleasant Sunday to you wherever
2: you may be. Such a page is
1: melancholy, so is California.
2: Well, that's baseball and it's my game. You know, you take your worries to the park and you leave them there. Fernando Valenzuela conquista su primera victoria en Serie Mundial y batea los Yankees. Bravo por ti, Fernando. And I believe. Society can remain good only as long as we are willing to fight for it. Baseball has no time limit. We don't know how long it's going to last. We might have extra innings. He's out by five feet at the plate. And that was the worst base running in the history of the game. I might
1: have
2: been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Hello and welcome to Fade Away, the Baseball History Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Enders. Today's episode, Pilot Part 2: The Short Career and Brilliant Life of Cubs legend Ken Hubbs. I gotta be honest with you. On the surface, Ken Hubbs seems like kind of a boring guy. He didn't say or do outlandish things. He didn't seek publicity. He didn't have any dark secrets or after hours habits. Nothing about him was flashy. He was an all-American boy straight from Central Casting. Ken Hubbs grew up in Colton, California, next to San Bernardino, during the years the Eisenhower administration was building the 10 Freeway through town. His family were devout Mormons. Kenny's father, Ulyss, was a polio survivor, confined to a wheelchair, who seemed to live out his athletic dreams through the feats of his sons, although not in the creepy, overbearing way that sometimes happens. In 1954, Kenny's dad was one of his coaches on the Colton Lions, who made it all the way to the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. There, 12-year-old Kenny hit what was supposedly the longest home run ever at the Little League Stadium. And despite playing with a broken toe, he also made a catch so amazing that one of his opponents still recalled it with awe 40 years later. The Lions lost in the championship game, but for Kenny, the most memorable part of the whole experience was the cross-country train trip to Pennsylvania. Not just because he got to watch America roll by outside his window, but also because the Lions made a special stop in Chicago, where they caught a game at Wrigley Field. Kenny got to meet several Cubs players, including a skinny rookie shortstop who he would one day play next to in the infield, Ernie Banks. Things hadn't always come easily for Kenny. As a newborn, he'd suffered a hernia that required him to wear a special truss.
0: And I don't know if you know what a truss is, but it's like a, a big spring wire with a leather ball on the end of it, and you, and you, what, you pull it apart, it's spring-loaded, so when you put it around the waist, the leather ball goes right where the hernia is and holds it in. And he wore that truss till he was in the second grade and constantly watched over by a doctor. And the doctor, these were his words, you will have to watch him his whole life. He will never be able to do things that other boys and girls do. (laughs) And the doctor was exactly right.
1: The doctor was right. Kenny Hubbs didn't play sports like the other kids. He played them better. When he was nine, he was boxing in a 12-and-over division. In baseball, he pitched with either hand. He dabbled in track, setting his school's record in the high jump.
0: Basketball was his best sport because he had real long arms, big hands, and he, at 6'3", he could stand underneath the basket, just rock back on one foot, jump, and do a two-handed dunk. Most, uh, Even Kobe at 6'5", I don't think he can do that.
1: People in Colton still talk about the high school game when Kenny hit a half-court shot right before halftime, and then a buzzer-beater later on to send the game into overtime. He was the 1959 version of a McDonald's All-American, playing in the National High School All-Star Game in Hutchinson, Kansas. John Wooden supposedly recruited him to play point guard at UCLA. Notre Dame, and about 20 other schools, wanted him to play quarterback instead. Tall, sandy-haired, and popular, Kenny was cajoled by a teacher into running for president of his high school class. He won, and he got his best friend, Denny Doyle, to serve as vice president. In 1958, Kenny spearheaded an effort by his classmates to raise money to rebuild Clinton High School in Tennessee, one of the first schools in the country to be desegregated by court order. The school had been bombed by racist terrorists who would rather see it destroyed than integrated. The kids from Colton ended up sending $216.58 to the rebuilding effort, and with similar contributions from around the country, the new school opened two years later. Kenny graduated a few months after his 17th birthday. College was tempting, but so was the bonus money being offered by the Chicago Cubs, either $20,000 or $50,000, depending on who you believe. Even the lower figure was three times the average family's income. Kenny decided to sign with the Cubs and take classes at BYU when time permitted. Had Kenny been born a year earlier, baseball's bonus rule would have required that the Cubs promote him, or any player receiving such a large signing bonus, directly to the big leagues. There he would have mostly sat on the bench where his skills may have atrophied and stunted his development. That happened to a lot of guys. Fortunately for Kenny, baseball had repealed the much-reviled bonus baby rule a few months earlier, so the Cubs were free to send him to the minors, Class D-ball, to start his pro career. His first team was in the backwoods town where Davy Crockett grew up, Morrisville, Tennessee, about an hour's drive away from the bombed-out high school that Kenny and his classmates had helped raise money for. Kenny's first year in the minors was outstanding, especially considering he was the youngest of all 201 players in his league. He was promoted too fast, though, and for the next two years he was lousy with both the bat and the glove, although once again he was facing players who were much older and more experienced than he was. Hubbs was converted from the outfield to shortstop, but he made so many errors that he was forced to switch positions again, this time to second base. With impressive raw tools and a grace that one teammate likened to a gazelle, Kenny possessed all the physical attributes of a great athlete, but few of the fine motor skills that separate the great players from the also-rans. At first, it was unclear whether second base would work out any better than the other positions had. For one thing, at 6'2", Kenny was considered too tall to be a second baseman. For the simple reason that much of a middle infielder's most important work fielding grounders, tagging out runners, is done on the ground, tall players were simply not allowed to play the middle infield. During the first 90 years of Major League Baseball, only two men taller than Ken Hubbs had ever played a full season at second base. Don Colloway, who played for the White Sox during World War II, and George Kelly, nicknamed High Pockets for his unusual height, who was normally a first baseman, but played one year at second back in 1925 when another player got hurt. Against the odds, though, Ken Hubbs took to playing second base like it was the one thing in life he'd been born to do. To help him learn the position, the Cubs embarked upon an intensive training process which Hubbs grumbled good-naturedly about. Each day they would make me turn 100 double plays in practice, over and over until double plays were coming out my ears, he said. I was almost ready to quit and go home. I don't know what kept me going. The training worked. Not only was Hubbs unafraid of base runners who would crash into him trying to break up a double play, but he actually seemed to enjoy the physical contact, one of his coaches said. Kenny was rewarded with a brief call up to the majors at the tail end of 1961, collecting his first hit, a double, against the legendary Robin Roberts. By the time he showed up for spring training in 1962, Ken Hubbs was one of the best defensive second basemen anybody could remember seeing. The beat writer for the Chicago Tribune wrote, He used his fielder's glove the way a violinist uses a bow. There was magic in it. It was practically unheard of for a player to skip from the Class B minor leagues all the way to the majors, a move that involved skipping three levels. But when the Cubs broke camp and headed north to start the season, Kenny Hubbs was their starting second baseman. The 1962 Cubs were a horrifically bad team that was in the final season of one of the most infamous failed experiments in baseball history, the College of Coaches. Instead of having a manager, the Cubs designated a group of coaches to take turns managing the team, pretentiously dubbing it the College of Coaches, as if to lend the idea a sort of academic credibility it did not in fact have. The team's micromanaging owner, chewing-gub magnate Phil Wrigley, believed managers were expendable, so he came up with the idea of having eight coaches rotate in and out of the job. The seven guys who weren't managing at any given time either assisted on the major league staff or were dispatched to the minors. The idea was a laughingstock from the start. While players are notorious creatures of habit, and changing managerial philosophies and directions several times a year was exactly the opposite of the continuity they craved. The Cubs won just 59 games and lost 103 in 1962, and the performance of Ken Hubbs was one of the few bright spots. One of his teammates, pitcher Dick Ellsworth, said Kenny provided instant leadership, despite once again being the youngest full-time player on the squad. From the day he showed up, he was a great player, and we knew he was going to be one of a kind, Ellsworth said. Kenny also hit better than expected, batting .290 as late as early June. I hope this isn't just a lucky streak, he said. Speaking of streaks, on June 13th, Kenny whiffed on a hard grounder hit by Roberto Clemente and was charged with an error. It would be 79 more games until he made another. Cubs fans quickly embraced Kenny, particularly those who experienced his small deeds of human kindness firsthand. One day, Kenny was on the field warming up before the game when his attention was drawn to an old woman sitting far back in the stands. She was a longtime Cubs diehard who, after years of listening to the team lose on the radio, was finally attending her first game at Wrigley Field so she could watch them lose in person. Ken Hubbs was her favorite player, but it was against the rules for him to talk to her or even sign an autograph. Ken Hubbs knew, as all ball players did, that chatting with the fans during pregame warm-ups was against the rules in baseball. The rule was a relic from the dead ball era, when the game's integrity was threatened by gamblers who would call out from the stands and offer players money to fix games. But Kenny Hubbs realized that by the 1960s, that archaic rule made little sense. So he broke it.
0: Kenny jumps over the, the little railing at Wrigley Field.
1: Keith Hubbs again.
0: Goes up and sits next to this lady, talks to her, signs a program for her, goes back to the dugout. And the lady didn't know this. My parents found out about it because this lady wrote her, wrote them a letter, how tickled she was that Kenny come up, the thrill of her life, signed the autograph, went back. Well, she didn't know. That's a $100 fine back then for doing that. You had to pay to go do that fine, little act for that lady.
1: Kenny got along well with his new teammates, even though, as his roommate Don Elston said, he was a different breed of cat than the rest of us. He had the Book of Mormon on the table. I've never seen faith like that family had. But Hubbs wasn't totally a stick in the mud. He had a wicked sense of humor, and his teammates recall him using laughter as a coping mechanism to get everyone through that grueling 103-loss season. Another roommate, Ron Santos, said he would always go out with us. He wouldn't drink, but he'd have as much fun as we did. He was deeply religious, never swore, never drank, played hard. He was talented. You knew this guy was going to be great. Before long, Kenny was one of Chicago's most eligible bachelors. He'd been engaged to marry his sweetheart from back home, but two weeks before the wedding, he got cold feet and called it off. In July of 62, the local gossip columns reported that Kenny was dating Sharon Boudreau, the daughter of Cubs broadcaster Lou Boudreau. Although when asked if marriage was on the horizon, Kenny replied, Not yet. I've got a lot of living to do first. Years later, Sharon would end up marrying a different ballplayer, Denny McLean. Kenny, meanwhile, began dating a model whose picture was on airline billboards around the country. Cubs was generally reticent with reporters, especially those who poked into his private affairs. As long as you talk baseball instead of his personal life, he'd give you a very good interview, another Cubs broadcaster, Jack Brickhouse, said. Listening to one of the interviews they did, though, Kenny seems to be content to give short, simple answers. He lets Brickhouse do most of the talking.
2: Three runs, seven hits and one error. A losing pitcher also in relief, Don McMahon. And now let's move over and get a little closer here to our old pal, Kenny Hubs. Can't say old pal too old because this boy's only 21 years old. Isn't that right, Ken? That's right, Jack. Congratulations. Uh, You fellas uh, brought the same script to the ballpark with you today, huh? Yeah, we we lucked out today again. Well, I guess you can say that uh, a game like that, there has to be an element of luck, uh, just like there has to be, I suppose, an element of bad luck when you lose some
1: of those squeakers. But the fact is that uh,
2: a battling comeback has been a kind of a trademark.
1: By August, Kenny's fielding streak was starting to get attention. Every day, the Chicago Tribune ran his number of consecutive errorless games on the front of the sports page in bold 60 point type. In game number 57, Hubbs broke the National League record for most consecutive errorless games and also for most consecutive errorless chances that is, most balls fielded without making an error. He now set his sights on the major league records of 73 games and 414 chances, both held by former Red Sox Bobby Doerr. Errorless streaks are what many experts today would call a junk stat, one that doesn't really tell you much about the value of a player's performance. Streaks, after all, are just random mathematical events. The number of errors you make is the number of errors you make. It doesn't really matter whether they occur in bunches or evenly spread out over time. But back in 1962, defensive records were wildly overvalued, completely out of proportion to their actual contribution to winning. For instance, Jackie Robinson's Hall of Fame plaque, originally minted that same year, says not one word about him courageously breaking baseball's color barrier. But the second thing it mentions is the record he once held for fielding percentage by a second baseman. Errors, or the lack thereof, were still considered a meaningful defensive statistic at the time, all of which is a long-winded way of saying that Ken Hubbs's errorless streak was perceived, at the time, to be much more glamorous than it would be today. If someone made a run at the same record in 2016, it would be a mere footnote. But in 1962, when Ken Hubbs did it, it was an event. One reporter compared the Hubbs hullabaloo to the attention paid Roger Maris a year earlier as he chased Babe Ruth's home run record. All this led Kenny to put a ton of pressure on himself. It was wonderful while it lasted, he later said of his streak, but I don't think I would want to go through it again. It almost made a wreck out of me. You have no idea of the pressure. September 1st, 1962, was the day Hubbs would attempt to tie Doerr's record of 73 straight errorless games. And wouldn't you know it, that was also the day he had his closest call. A batter hit a chopper toward Cubs shortstop Andre Rodgers, who charged in to get it and then whipped a sidearm throw, which sailed past Hubbs, who was standing only 30 feet away. The ball flew into right field, and the Wrigley Field crowd audibly groaned, figuring the streak was over. But a moment later, they burst into cheers when the error was charged to Rodgers instead of Hubbs. Kenny tied the record without further incident. The following day, he broke the mark, playing in his 74th straight game without a miscue. Five days later, Kenny fielded a grounder for his 415th straight errorless play, passing Doors other record.
2: The 2-1 pitch to Johnny Edwards. Fastball hit on the ground to Kenny Hubbs. Here it is, the record breaker. He throws him out, and that's number 415 for Hubbs, which breaks the record. He just threw Johnny Edwards out to retire the side, and it's the 415th consecutive chance for Hubbs. Without an error, and Dusty Boggess gives him the baseball, and that'll go in a very treasured place. Pubs comes out and accepts the ball from Boggess, and tips his cap, acknowledging the cheers of the fans here in Cincinnati.
1: That play came in the first game of a doubleheader. During the second game, Kenny fielded a routine double-play grounder and airmailed the throw into left field, ending his streak at 78 games and 418 errorless chances. I'm sure glad that's over with, he said. Now I can finally concentrate on my hitting. Boy, I wasn't thinking at all at bat during the last few weeks. It was true. During Kenny's streak, his batting average dropped 18 points and his OPS fell 30 points. Despite his extraordinary fielding streak, Cubs ended up making 15 errors on the season and ranked only 7th among Major League Second Basemen in fielding percentage. He was, however, named the winner of the Gold Glove Award the only time in an eight-year period the hardware went to someone other than Pittsburgh's Bill Mazeroski. Thanks to the publicity from the streak, as well as a weak field of candidates, Hubs also received 19 of 20 votes for National League Rookie of the Year. The 1963 season began with a welcome change for Hubs and his team. The Cubs scrapped the College of Coaches opting for a single person in charge, even though they still insisted in calling him the head coach instead of the manager. Kenny's play, however, didn't quite match up to the year before, though his defense still got raves. The new head coach, Bob Kennedy, said Hubs was like a steel post at second. When you thought there was no way a double play could be turned, Ken Hubs turned it. But unfortunately, if there was a double play in a Cubs game in 1963, it was most likely Kenny Hubs who was hitting into it, He ranked among the league leaders by doing that 17 times, and his batting average plummeted 25 points to 235. Hubbs's woeful 606 OPS made him the 96th best hitter out of 102 full-time players in baseball. Cubs fans wondered whether the sophomore jinx had struck, and Hubbs, in an interview with Jack Brickhouse, hinted that the issue might have been psychological.
2: Now, of course, Kenny, you were Rookie of the Year last year. And uh, with those 78 straight errorless games and those 418 consecutive chances, and uh, anybody would have called anybody else rookie of the year would have been out of their mind, I think. But uh, now the sophomore jinx seems to be an expression in baseball. But I don't just because you haven't, uh, we'll say, <laughs> had, handled as many consecutive chances, uh, and that sort of thing, doesn't mean that. Uh, and just because you're 15 points lower than you hit last year, I wouldn't say you've been a victim of a jinx or anything, would you? No, I don't. I don't believe in jinxes. I I think maybe that. Uh the reason the sophomore year you have such a tough time is everyone throws a sophomore jinx at you and you just want to go out there and show them that there is no such thing and try a little too hard.
1: Ken Hubbs played so poorly in 1963 that that June, after fumbling three balls in one game, he actually heard boos from the Wrigley Field crowd, which would have been unheard of a year earlier. On the bright side, 1963 was the year Kenny finally began to overcome his long-standing fear of flying. In the early 1960s, though commercial flights had been around for decades, the majority of Americans had never been in an airplane. There were 58 million airline tickets sold in 1961, and while that sounds like a lot, nowadays the figure is 14 times higher, over 800 million. Fear of flying was common back then, and ballplayers were no different. Luis Tiant, Rusty Staub and Bob Gibson were among the many baseball stars who were deathly afraid of air travel. Before 1958, it hadn't really mattered, since all Major League teams were in the eastern half of the U.S., and trains transported them from city to city. But when the Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants moved to Los Angeles and San Francisco, respectively, that, combined with the debut of commercial jet travel in 1954, ensured that most baseball road trips would be taken in the air. Most players managed to suck it up and overcome their fear of flying. But there were also extreme cases, like Jackie Jensen's. Jackie Jensen was strong and tough, a spectacular athlete who'd once scored a touchdown in the Rose Bowl game and later went on to become American League MVP with the Boston Red Sox. But Jensen had a crippling fear of flying. The very thought of it reduced him to a quivering pile of jello. He drove to road games whenever possible, including, once, an 1,100-mile drive from Boston to Chicago. The times Jensen did fly, he could do so only with the help of tranquilizers, sleeping pills, beer, and a raft of psychiatrists. One time he managed to board the team plane, but was unable to keep it together during takeoff, so the flight attendants wrapped him in a blanket and ejected him from the flight, leaving the shivering and sweating Jensen behind on the tarmac. Finally, in 1959, at age 32 and fresh off leading the league in RBIs, Jensen decided he just couldn't take it anymore and simply walked away from the game. A couple of years later, after seeing a hypnotist for help, he tried to come back, but it fizzled out and he retired for good. That last chapter of the Jackie Jensen story occurred during Ken Hubbs's rookie year, and Kenny, to deal with his own fear of flying, spent every flight sitting next to his roomie, Ron Santo, who was constantly reassuring him. In 1963, Kenny decided to overcome his fears by learning everything he could about air travel. During spring training, he started taking flying lessons from Art Schall, a famous stunt pilot who later died in a crash while filming the movie Top Gun. When the Cubs hopped from city to city on their chartered DC-6, Kenny would sit in the cockpit watching the pilot's every move. Before he even had his pilot's license, Kenny spent almost a year's salary, $10,000, on a brand new plane, a Cessna 172D Skyhawk. The Skyhawk is your basic single-engine starter plane. It's safe, affordable, and utilitarian. It's still being manufactured today, and with over 43000 sold, it's the best-selling plane in aviation history. Kenny's version had four seats, red and white stripes on the side, and no rear window. It could climb up to 13,000 feet and hold enough fuel to fly 670 miles. Understandably, the prospect of their son as a pilot made Hubbs's parents nervous.
0: My dad says you got a chore to do. I said, "What?" He said, "You got to go talk to your brother. He's trying to learn to fly." I said, "What?" I mean, scared the devil out of me. So, I get in the car with Kenny. We went out to the airport, and he didn't have his license yet. But he had soloed, so I had to sit there by his car, and he was doing touch-and-goes at the airport. You know, take off, landing, go around, take off, landing. They call it touch-and-goes. My heart was, like, beating up in my throat (laughs) every time I saw him coming in to land. But he was an excellent pilot, and so he kept it going. This is how successful I was at talking him out of flying. Guess what I got? My pilot's license. (laughs) I'm trying to talk him out of it, and, and I end up getting my pilot's license.
1: By the end of 1963, Kenny's fear of flying seemed a distant memory. Now he loved it. He told Ron Santo, When I get up there, Ron, and I fly, it's like being next to God. That winter, Kenny mostly hung around with Denny Doyle, his best friend from high school, who spent so much time at the Hub's home that he was often mistaken for a member of the family. Denny, by the way, was no relation to the Red Sox player of the same name.
0: Denny Doyle was a year younger, a year older than Kenny, but they were really good friends and did a lot together, both, you know, members of the LDS church. Denny's mother was killed in an automobile accident when he was a baby. He never knew her. His father uh, became a drunkard, and he was so bad that Denny was raised by his grandparents in Colton, and he and Kenny just hit it off. Anyway, they were just really good friends. Denny married and a six-week-old little girl, and they lived in Colton with us. His wife took the train and went to Provo to show her new little baby to her parents who had never seen the baby, little baby girl. And um, they were at my house getting ready to fly up and surprise them. Kenny had two weeks before spring training, and he had his pilot's license, and he was a good pilot. And uh, he wanted to do a couple of cross-country trips before he had to quit flying during the season. And so they were going to fly up to Provo, and just get there, and the next day fly back, and just surprise Denny's wife. They left my house. They kept trying to get me to go with them, and I had work the next day, and I couldn't go.
1: On Friday morning, Valentine's Day, after staying in Utah two nights, Kenny and Denny decided to fly back home. At ten in the morning, the sky was chilly and gray, with gusty winds whipping snow flurries around. They took off anyway, with Kenny at the controls of the Skyhawk. Flying south over the severe desert, and by the way, that's not a description, it's the actual name of the desert, S-E-V-I-E-R. They flew much lower than usual, using the tracks of the Denver, Rio Grande, and Western Railroad as a visual guide to steer clear of the mountain ranges looming on either side. They made it less than 100 miles before the storm got too heavy. Near the town of Delta, Utah, Hubs radioed that they decided to turn around and fly back to the Provo Airport. But since Kenny had his radio tuned to the wrong frequency, he couldn't hear any reply. That was the last transmission air traffic control ever got from Ken Hubs. After they turned back toward Provo, things only got worse. The storm wasn't localized like they thought. In fact, it was snowing across most of Utah that day. Kenny had gotten his pilot's license just two weeks earlier, and he was operating the aircraft under what the FAA calls visual flight rules, meaning the only means of navigation is the pilot's eyesight and instinct. As the plane approached Provo Airport, Hubbs's view out the windshield became a sea of white, the snowstorm enveloping the plane to such an extent that he was unable to see the horizon or determine at what angle he was flying. Kenny wasn't instrument rated, meaning he wasn't certified to use the Skyhawk's various gauges to control the plane in low visibility conditions. His father later told the press that Kenny actually did know how to fly on instruments, he just didn't have the certification. In any case, two minutes before they would have reached the airport, Kenny lost control of the plane over an icy alpine pool called Utah Lake. The Skyhawk went into a nosedive and headed straight toward an island in the middle of the lake.
0: Utah Lake had 18 inches of ice and two or three feet of snow. He was in a white, total whiteout. He couldn't tell up from down. So he he may have tried to go to instrument, you know and still try to look out the window to see some kind of ground reference and he got into a spiral and just spiraled and a spiral puts your nose down right into the ground and that's exactly what happened and I figured he was probably flying. Now me I, I would have enough of a chicken that I'd have looked for a place to just set it down in the snow but Kenny was always confident in whatever he did. I'm sure that he was thinking we can make it to the airport.
1: Some felt the weather was bad enough that a more experienced pilot never would have taken off in the first place. That same morning, a flight instructor six miles away canceled his own scheduled takeoff because the weather looked too ominous. Now, do you do you have any idea why, I mean, uh, Kenny seems like um, someone who exhibited very mature decision making in, in yeah. other aspects of his life Do you and, and I've read the, the NTSB report that says there were also snow flurries at the airport when he took off, do you have any idea why he might have d- made well, that he decision? Called.
0: Here's what happened, because I checked into it too, at the airport it was starting to snow and the report said it was clear south, the storm front was north of Salt Lake moving south And they thought they could take off and stay ahead of the storm. And what had happened was, back then they didn't have satellite weather like they do today. You know how they reported weather? Idaho reported it so that Salt Lake knew it and on down the line. And the weather reporting was, we have snow and it's heading south. That's how they reported it. Well, south of Provo, there wasn't anything. Little teeny towns and the mountains. They call it horseshoeing. The storm was in the mountains, east and west of Provo. And what had happened is, when he—if f- it would have just been the storm front—he probably would have stayed ahead of it. But when he went south, the storm was was on each side of that valley in the mountains, and it closed on him. We don't know. They estimated half hour or so south of Provo that's when he turned around and tried to get back to the Provo Airport. And when he did that, he turned right into the face of the main storm. So it was a judgment thing. Yeah. They thought that they could, I'm sure, you know, just conjecture, but I'm sure he thought that he could have stayed because he did call and get a weather report. And so he probably figured he could stay ahead of it by heading south, mm-hmm. which didn't work out. Yeah. Sad days.
1: Back in California, when Kenny and Denny failed to arrive home at 2 p.m. as scheduled, Kenny's father started getting worried. But he didn't panic because Kenny had indicated they might stop off in Las Vegas to refuel. When they still failed to appear by evening, Mr. Hubbs called Denny's in-laws in Provo to see if Kenny was still there, and that's when he realized something had likely gone horribly wrong. At 8 o'clock Friday night, Ulysses Hubbs called the Provo Airport to report his son missing. It was too dark to start looking right then, so the search for Ken Hubbs began at dawn the next morning. The state of Utah launched a three-state aerial search covering Utah, Southern Nevada, and Southern California. An Air Force base in Phoenix sent two planes to search the flight path. Kenny's plane was discovered mid-morning by a search pilot flying over Utah Lake, just five miles away from the Provo Airport. Some of the wreckage was scattered on top of the ice, and the rest of it had sunk underneath. One of the search pilots said it looked like, quote, a typical graveyard spiral where an inexperienced pilot flying in bad weather loses his horizons and can't discern the ground. Kenny's plane, with its engine still turned on, had hit the ice at a 70-degree angle, a quarter mile south of Bird Island. It left a giant gash 10 feet deep in the ice-covered lake. Skin divers in wetsuits dove in, trying but failing to recover the bodies from the freezing water. The following day, they did manage to recover the bodies, or parts of them anyway, and they also found all the parts of the plane except the propeller, which, as far as anyone knows, remains at the bottom of Utah Lake to this day.
0: and it was a explosion kind of when it hit the ice so hard it went through 18 inches of ice it was a year later after it happened that i got the details and i never told my parents but they were strapped in their seats uh, at the bottom of the lake and arms and heads and everything were were in the water, in the ice, in the snow. I never told my parents that. There was no need for them to know. But Kenny and Denny are probably in each other's caskets because I talked to two friends of mine that were real good friends and they were out on the, they drove out on the lake to help recover everything. And they were, they had two stretchers there and they were putting body parts on each. So I imagine in the caskets, Kenny and Denny, they are still good friends. (laughs) You know, they didn't distinguish the parts.
1: Kenny's parents, needless to say, were crushed when they heard the news. They had to be sedated so they could sleep. Every time the front door opens, I expect to see Ken walking through, his father said. Billy Connors, Kenny's good friend from the minor leagues, heard the news when he turned on the radio in Schenectady, New York. Billy Williams, Cubs teammate, heard the news on the radio too, at his home in Whistler, Alabama. Pitcher Dick Ellsworth found out when a reporter called his parents' house in Fresno. Nobody took the news harder than Ron Santo, who had been Kenny's best friend on the Cubs. After he died, I had to see a priest, Santo said. I couldn't understand it. I mean, he loved life. He was a great human being. What remained of Kenny's body was shipped back to California by train. His funeral service was held in the auditorium of his alma mater, Colton High School. City offices were closed for the day as 1,300 people packed in to pay their respects with the overflow crowd spreading into the lobby and out onto the lawn. Kenny's teammates, including Ron Santo and Ernie Banks, served as pallbearers. Two months later, the Cubs flew from Mesa to Salt Lake City for an exhibition game, and their flight path passed right over Utah Lake. Silently, but in unison, the players slid over toward the windows to take a look at the crash site. What a waste, the manager, Bob Kennedy, muttered. On opening day, there was a moment of silence for Hubs before the game, although it says a lot about the state of the Cubs' franchise at the time that Wrigley Field was half-empty for opening day. Only 18,000 people decided it was worth braving the 35-degree weather. Said Ron Santo, We had a meeting this spring, and we decided Kenny wouldn't want us to feel sorry for him. We felt he would want us to try our hardest, and that's just what we're going to do. Nevertheless, Kenny's death deflated the team. The Cubs finished in 8th place. The team retired Kenny's number 16 for what was supposed to be one season, but stretched into seven before it was issued again in 1970. Today, number 16 is worn by Brandon Hyde, the team's first base coach. When a famous person dies tragically, the trauma of their death often changes how we view their life. Things that are wished for get conflated with things that actually happened. In the memories of some of his fans and teammates, Ken Hubbs became a significantly greater player in death than he'd ever been in life. Dick Ellsworth said he was the symbol of the Cubs, but of course the real symbol of those Cubs was, and always will be, Ernie Banks. Kenny's teammate Billy Williams said Hubbs would have become as good as the legendary Ryan Sandberg, to whom Kenny's early career bears some superficial resemblance. Kenny's manager took things even a step further, suggesting that Hubbs would have become a Hall of Famer. His future was boundless. Kenny was to be the center of the Cubs for years and years, Bob Kennedy said. The what-if scenarios reached a ludicrous crescendo in 1993 when Steve Rushen, a writer for Sports Illustrated, published a column suggesting that the Cubs would have won five World Series beginning in 1969 had Ken Hubbs lived to play out the rest of his career. Russian's piece was a fanciful tall tale, clearly not meant to be taken seriously, but some literal-minded Cubs fans seized on it as evidence that Kenny's death, along with the infamous Billy Goat curse, were the main reasons the club had failed to win a pennant for the better part of a century. In reality, it's a little sad to say, but the Cubs replaced Ken Hubbs rather easily. Glenn Beckert, a young infielder whose ascent through the farm system might otherwise have been blocked by Kenny Hubbs, instead became Chicago's starting second baseman. By his second year, Beckert was receiving MVP votes, and from nineteen sixty nine through nineteen seventy two, precisely the years when Sports Illustrated fantasized Kenny would have led the team to titles, Glenn Beckert was named to four straight All Star teams as Chicago's second baseman. The Cubs certainly missed some opportunities in the late sixties, but it wasn't because they were without Ken Hubbs. Ron Santos said When Kenny was killed in that airplane crash, I figured it was an almost irreplaceable loss. I didn't suspect that Beckert could do the job he's showing us. And what does Kenny's brother think?
0: He would have played for 20 years. That's the kind of shape he was in. Never drank, never smoked. So I figured he would have played a long time.
1: Keith Hubbs is right. Kenny would have played for a long time. But he almost certainly wouldn't have sniffed the Hall of Fame. As writer Rob Nyer bluntly put it, the problem was that Ken Hubbs couldn't hit, and it's unlikely that he ever would have become a decent hitter. Indeed, other than half a season in Class D ball when he was 17, nothing in Kenny's record indicates that he ever would have become a good Major League hitter. The only three offensive categories he ever led the league in were outs made, strikeouts, and grounding into double plays. Paradoxically, Ken Hubbs not only made less contact than anyone else in the league, but he also hit into more double plays than anyone, something that specifically requires the batter to make contact. Kenny's career OPS, a rough measure of his overhaul hitting ability, was 626, which is lousy even for a second baseman. Only six second basemen this century have managed to hit that poorly and still keep their job, even for one season. Two of them are Alex Cora and Darwin Barney both spectacular defensive infielders who probably provide the best parallels for what Ken Hubbs would have become. In all likelihood, Kenny's career would have turned out like those of Cora or Barney or Chico Lind or Pokey Reese. Players who couldn't hit a lick, but whose glove work at second base was so sensational that it propelled them to an 8 or 12 or 15 year career in the major leagues. And there is no shame in that. After Kenny died, his brother Keith began having recurring nightmares about the crash. But rather than trying to forget that terrible day in 1964, Keith Hubbs has spent the last half-century keeping Kenny's memory alive and doing good works in his honor. Keith helped get both the high school gym and the local Little League named after Kenny. He's the driving engine behind the Ken Hubbs Foundation, which gives out a Ken Hubbs Award every year to the best high school athlete in the San Bernardino area. Ronnie Lott, the legendary defensive back, won it one year. A few years ago, Keith was going through an old equipment bag when he came across a well-worn glove, a Chuck Cottier infielder's model. Tiny little thing. It was the glove that Kenny had used to set all his fielding records. Keith donated the glove to the Hall of Fame, and when he visited Cooperstown a few years later, he was proud as a peacock to see it there inside its museum case in all its humidity-controlled glory. Kenny had made the Hall of Fame after all, in a way. There was something special about his greatness being on display for future generations to see. Now when Keith dreams about Kenny, the dreams are much more pleasant than the nightmares he suffered through back in 1964.
0: Every night I had a nightmare because I was flying the plane. I knew the plane. I would soloed in that plane. I didn't get my license in that plane, but I'd soloed and I flew it by myself and with Kenny, and I would have these nightmares of a plane crash. Some of them I would be in the plane, other nightmares I'd be watching Kenny crash, and they were terrible. I'd wake up in a, just a sweat, you know? And I was afraid to go to sleep at night because I'd have those nightmares. Well, the doctors gave us a sleeping pill, and my wife and I, our first night back to our home, I hesitated to go to sleep again, but I did. And in the middle of the night, you can call it a dream. I don't call it a dream. I call it a visit. I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm looking. I couldn't describe the, the, the scenery, but it was flat, and maybe 20 paces away is Kenny, and he's walking towards me quickly, and he walks, but he stops. We always hugged, every time we saw each other again, we hugged each other, but he stops maybe three paces from me, and in this commanding voice, he says to me, Keith, quit worrying about me, it was quick, there was no pain, and I'm happy where I'm at, turned around and walked away from me, and I never, ever had a nightmare about it again.
1: This episode of Fade Away was written, produced, and edited by Eric Enders. Special thanks to Keith Hubs for being such a gracious interview guest. And a shout-out also to the authors whose published work was helpful in researching today's show, including George Castle, Dick Rosetta, Joseph Wancho, and David Whitley. If you missed the first part of today's episode about Ted Williams... It's available as a separate download from wherever you downloaded this one. I see the drama in the poor man's eyes. I see his soul take to the skies. You can visit our website at fadeawaypodcast.com where you can check out the box score for today's episode, which contains the full list of sources and music credits for today's show. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at FadeawayPod. And of course, you can subscribe to the show, rate and review it on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and remember, when the snow melts away, the cubbies still play in their ivy-covered burial grounds. (laughs) we <laughs>